Welcome to St. Alphonsus Wellcast, the podcast where we explore the many facets of health and well-being. This podcast is brought to you by St. Alphonsus Corporate Health and Well-Being and a generous grant from the St. Alphonsus Foundation. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hi everyone, my name is Amy James and I am a dietitian and health coach here at St. Alphonsus in our Corporate Health and Wellbeing Department and I am so excited for a couple of reasons. One, this is my first podcast episode back since having my baby last October, so I'm really excited to get back on more of these episodes and um, be talking to you guys uh, a little bit more regularly. And number two, for my first episode back, we are talking about something I personally think is really cool today. We're going to chat about vitamin D. Um, so let's get into it. Uh, why am I so excited to talk with you guys, albeit briefly, um, but on vitamin D? Why is this topic so exciting to me? So if you're like most people who watch TV, have some familiarity with social media, read the news, or if you read the back of your food label, you probably are familiar with the fact that vitamin D has received tons of attention in recent years. And so why exactly is this? So recent studies have linked vitamin D levels with lower incidence of cancers, heart disease, I mean, increased immune function, increased cognitive health, decreased risk for type 2 diabetes, and then probably the most well-known and most important, um, its relationship with bone and muscle health. So on top of those many and very significant relationships that we see, Vitamin D is actually also one of the nutrients that Americans are most at risk for being deficient in, and this is why you now see it on your Nutrition Facts label. So we'll get into that a little bit here in a minute, but the overall point is we know that this vitamin is very, very important and deserves a little bit of a spotlight on our podcast. Um, So let's break this down. What exactly is vitamin D? Now, I'm going to segue here. Quick aside, I'll say, is this is this next part, this next 5, 10 minutes is probably going to be um, maybe a little bit in the weeds, but it serves my um, interest in biochemistry. And so I hope that it is interesting to some of you out there. And for the others who it is not interesting, you might want to scrub forward a little bit. But let's get into it. So vitamin D is a compound that is derived from a steroid, and it acts as both a hormone that we make ourselves, and it's an essential micronutrient that we must get from the diet, or it's a vitamin. And this is because we don't make enough for all the various awesome regulatory functions that we are about to get into. Vitamin D comes in many different forms, but the main theme here is that they all have to be activated in order to perform all of these functions. So let's talk a little bit about the different forms because this is a a big topic when we talk about supplementing with vitamin D, you know, which form do we take, yada, yada, yada. So let's get into it. So first what happens is we are going to ingest either vitamin D2 or D3 through our gut in the food that we eat in our diet or through our skin. Either way that you get your vitamin D, D2, D3, diet, skin, either way, um, it's going to be transported to the liver where it's turned into 25-OH vitamin D. Again, this is my like biochemistry uh, uh, people, my biochemistry fans out there that this is going to be really interesting for. I know what some of you are thinking. What exactly is the difference between D2 and D3, and is it significant? So short answer, we don't really know, but likely not a huge difference. Now, when I put on my dietitian hat, I'll tell you that most nutrition professionals out there recommend D3 because of its bioavailability, but again, whether you're ingesting D3 or D2, whether you're getting it from UV uh, light, it's all going to have to follow the same pathway in order to be 
activated. And I'll get into that in just a second. Um, as far as some significant differences between the two, vitamin D2, or you might also hear it called ergocalciferol, that's going to be found in plants and some of your fungi, so like mushrooms. Vitamin D3, you might also hear this called cholecalciferol. You're going to find this in your animal sources, so fatty flesh of fish, cod liver oil, things like that. This is also the version of vitamin uh, D that we fortify our foods with. So commonly fortified foods are going to be dairy, like milk, or your cereals. And this is also the kind of vitamin D that we make in our skin, and I'll give you details on that in a little bit. Either way, goes to the liver. We make 25-OH vitamin D where it is converted one more time at the level of the kidneys into its active form. And this is going to be 125-dihydroxy vitamin D3, or for short, uh, calcitriol. And you will hear me refer to as the active form of vitamin D or calcitriol for the remainder of the podcast. So I've talked or I've stated many times now that vitamin D has so many functions in the body. What exactly is the activity of this active vitamin D or calcitriol? I just want to say this could be a very long podcast on how many functions vitamin D has in the body. But again, in the interest of this not being a two-hour episode, even though that could be interesting for the future, let's talk more about what the main function of vitamin D is. Let's go, let's be a little bit more broad for the purpose of this episode. So first and foremost, it regulates blood levels of calcium. So calcium is a key player in our bone health. And active vitamin D helps keep our blood calcium levels within normal limits uh, by many mechanisms, actually by three main ones, including first and foremost at the level of your gut. So this makes sure vitamin D makes sure that we absorb enough calcium and phosphorus. So the two minerals that dominantly mineralize our bone uh, when we eat it in our diet. So vitamin D comes along and makes sure that we are absorbing enough calcium and phosphorus. And then it will also function at the level of the kidneys. It will increase the reabsorption of calcium. So in other words, vitamin D is there to make sure we don't pee a lot of calcium out, that we're reabsorbing it at the level of the kidneys. And then the third place that it works is actually at the level of the bone. And this might seem a little counterintuitive, but hopefully I explain it well enough. Um, So it stimulates bone cells, specifically osteoclasts, um, to break down or demineralize our bone to release calcium if our blood calcium is low. Now, this is advantageous, one, to keep our blood level of calcium normal, but it's also advantageous because it makes room to remineralize or, I don't want to say this, almost like rearrange our bone structure to keep it hearty and healthy and, and mineralized. So the big takeaway here. Without adequate vitamin D in our diet or through sun exposure, UV light exposure, we cannot absorb enough calcium and phosphorus that are very necessary to mineralize our bones. So that is the big function of vitamin D. Where exactly do we get vitamin D in the diet and in our life? So first, let's address probably the most common that we hear when we associate vitamin D, um, UV light. So sun exposure is a great way to get adequate vitamin D. Essentially what happens here is that there is a steroid found in our skin that when activated by UVB rays can turn this steroid into vitamin D3. There are a lot of different recommendations out there, but generally speaking, anywhere from 8 to about 15 minutes max of 25% of your body exposed daily is said to meet the recommended amount of vitamin D. 25% exposure would look like your hands, neck, arms, and face being exposed. I do want to say that while UV 
bee rays or exposure to sunlight is a rich source of vitamin D. Excessive exposure is absolutely linked with skin cancer, and so it's best to avoid excessive amounts of exposure over long periods of time to the sun. Um, and we definitely want to recommend, you know, safe practices using uh, sunscreen or covering up appropriately after I would say no more than 20 minutes of exposure. Um, and this also includes uh, not using tanning beds as those are also uh, very highly correlated with incidences of skin cancer. The second way we get vitamin D is through the diet. So unfortunately, there aren't a ton of rich sources of foods that have naturally occurring high amounts of vitamin D. And so in turn, we have really perfected the fortification process. Um, and again, I mentioned it earlier, but of dairy products and cereals with that D3. Best sources, however, are going to be the flesh of fatty fish and fish liver oils. And smaller amounts can be found in egg yolks, cheese, and beef liver. And then we also see in that fungi family that some mushrooms have vitamin D2 in them. And something that's interesting is that some of those more commercially sold mushrooms will actually be sat out in the sun to increase their content um, of vitamin D2, which I think is interesting. So I talked to you a little bit about the function, where we get it. Um, I think now would be a really good time to talk about what the recommended dietary allowance is and why exactly this is so important. So to give you guys some numbers, worldwide, an estimated 1 billion people have inadequate levels of vitamin D in their blood. And so deficiencies can be found in all ethnicities and age groups. So this truly affects everybody. So what exactly happens when we're low in vitamin D and consequently calcium and phosphorus? So before we get into those details, the RDA, the recommended dietary allowance for adults 19 years and older, is 600 international units or 15 micrograms. Um, and that's daily for both men and women. If you're an older adult, specifically over 70 years, it bumps up a little bit to 800 international units or 20 micrograms daily. And I'll get into it a little bit later about why it's important for older adults to get a little bit more in, um, in their diet. So how did we come to these numbers? Um, it's There's a lot of discrepancy in what we recommend. So again, just going to kind of spit out some numbers from some highly recommended or excuse me, highly recognized Institution. So the Institute of Medicine in November of 2010 recommended increasing the daily vitamin D intake for children and adults to 600 international units per day. However, other well-recognized groups such as the Endocrine Society recommend actually 1,500 to 2,000 international units in order to reach adequate serum levels of vitamin D. So you see a lot of discrepancy, a lot of differences between big reputable sources and what their recommendations are for vitamin D in the diet. However, there's no consensus as far as an amount to be considered adequate. But I will say the RDA is 600 I use for men and women. And then for those that are 70 years or older, it's 800 I use. So getting back to it specifically, what happens when we don't have enough? So if we become deficient in vitamin D, Consequently, we will also become deficient in calcium and phosphorus. And this results in soft bones, or in other words, what is called as osteomalacia in adults. In children, this is called rickets. So I don't want to get too in detail about the symptomology of osteomalacia or rickets in children. Um, I encourage you guys to look those up. But more so, I do want to make this differentiation. So Osteomalacia is different from osteopenia and osteoporosis in that osteomalacia is a, um, there is a discrepancy in the ratio between bone mineral and bone matrix, or in other words, it's, it, it's a low ratio. So you've got a set amount of bone, bony matrix that's supposed to house all of the minerals, right? But the mineral 
mineralization is low. So in other words, a great way to think about this is that you've got the warehouse, but it's empty. So you don't have that. You have the mineral capacity, but you don't have the minerals to fill your bony matrix. Osteoporosis, on the other hand, is that the ratio is the same. You've got bony matrix that's filled with bone mineral, but the density or the mass is low. Both put you at risk for fractures, but they are a little bit different. So who is at risk for vitamin D deficiency? I'm going to go through a few of these populations. So people with inflammatory bowel disease, that's going to be ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease or any other condition that might disrupt normal digestion of fat. Um, and this is because vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin. And so it is uh, it heavily relies on the gut's ability to absorb dietary fat in order for you to absorb vitamin D. People who live in larger bodies or are considered obese tend to also have lower blood vitamin D levels, and this is because that fat-soluble vitamin, vitamin D, accumulates in excessive fat tissues, and so it's a little bit harder to access when the body needs it. Alternatively, if you are someone who lives in a larger body who experiences weight loss, then you will see that vitamin D actually rise in your, um, in your blood as you lose weight. People who have undergone gastric bypass surgery, so typically this removes part of the, the part of the stomach or the small intestine where vitamin D is absorbed, and so you could be at risk for vitamin D deficiency. Breastfed babies are also at risk, and that's because we know that the vitamin D in, in the mother has poor transferability in breast milk. And so it's very important that if you have a breastfed baby that you are giving them 400 IUs daily of vitamin D. Typically, this is in the form of drops. If you have a higher melanin content in your skin or darker skin, um, that's kind of like an added protection against UV radiation. And so it can make that process in the skin of converting that steroid into D3 a little bit more difficult. And so you are more at risk for vitamin D deficiency. And then if you have low exposure to UV light, specifically if you live in like the northern latitudes, northern Europe, North America, or if you're someone who does not eat milk, eggs, or fish due to you know, uh, allergy intolerance, or maybe you're vegan, for example, you also are at risk for vitamin D deficiency. And then finally, um, our older adult population is at risk for vitamin D deficiency for a number of reasons. One, as we get older, we have a little bit more diminished intake. We're not eating as much. Our metabolism slows a little bit. You could be on certain medications that interfere with absorption. You have decreased sun exposure. If your mobility is lower, you're less likely to get outside and get exposed to the sun. Thinning skin can also impair your ability to absorb enough vitamin D. You might have impaired GI absorption or impaired breakdown at the level of the liver or the kidneys. And so a few different ways older adults are more at risk, and that's why that RDA is a little bit higher at 800 IUs for our older adult population. So I do want to touch on the fact that you know, we talked a lot about vitamin D deficiency, but it is a fat-soluble vitamin, and so you absolutely can get too much vitamin D in your diet, and it can be just as equally as harmful. And so typically how we see this happening or how we see toxicity happening is when someone is megadosing a supplement, um, so that D3 or D2 supplement, um, and that's why it's advised to not take any more than 4,000 IUs a day unless you're under the supervision of a doctor and you're being closely monitored for whatever reason. So really, really important that we're, we're sticking to below than that. So finally, before we wrap this up, I do want to talk about other possible relationships between adequate vitamin D and diseases, and specifically, I'm going to talk about three. So let's talk about cancer, cardiovascular disease, and type 2 diabetes, as I feel these are the most um, prevalent and um, the most important to talk about. So as far as cancer goes, 
about 20 years ago, researchers noticed this relationship between people who lived at higher latitudes, such as in North America or Northern Europe, um, and that they had higher rates of death from colon cancer compared to people who lived closer to the equator. So this really tipped scientists off to study this potential relationship. And so unfortunately, not a whole lot was found as far as, you know, very high doses and the incidence of cancer or how many people, you know, uh, had some cancerous process develop in their body. But what we did find, and this was specifically through the VITAL trial, was that vitamin D status may improve survival if someone develops cancer. So if you develop a cancer and you've got adequate vitamin D, your survival rate goes up just a bit. But as we say in the scientific community, more research needed. Uh, cardiovascular disease, a little bit more similar. So we know that um, as far as the relationship between our cardiovascular system and vitamin D, the heart is a huge muscle, right? And like all skeletal muscle, vitamin D receptors live on the outside of it. And so we also know that the immune and inflammatory cells that play a role, a huge role in cardiovascular disease in conditions like atherosclerosis, these are all regulated by vitamin D. We also know that the vitamin D helps to keep arteries flexible and relaxed, so this could help improve or control high blood pressure. And so what the research can confidently say is that lower levels of vitamin D, so not adequate vitamin, vitamin D levels, are associated with more cardiovascular incidence. And what we don't know is for those of us who have adequate vitamin D, if you supplement and give yourself super amounts of vitamin D, serum vitamin D, we don't know if that might reduce risk because it has not been demonstrated in the research. But we know that lower or inadequate vitamin D, serum vitamin D, is related with more cardiovascular incidence. So again, more to be um, researched there, but some significant relationships. Finally, type 2 diabetes. So we know that vitamin D deficiency or not having enough vitamin D can negatively affect the biochemical pathways that lead to the development of type 2 diabetes. And these include either impairment of the beta cell function in the pancreas. So we know that the beta cells are responsible for releasing insulin in response to intaking glucose. Also insulin resistance. So vitamin D deficiency can negatively impact or increase the rate at which someone is insulin resistant. And then we also know that vitamin D deficiency can cause inflammation. And so some observational studies have shown that higher vitamin D blood levels are associated with lower rates of type 2 diabetes mellitus, but similar to cardiovascular disease. The research says that those who have adequate levels of vitamin D in their diet had a significantly reduced risk of developing type 2 diabetes compared to those who had lower or inadequate vitamin D. Again, the research does not say uh, there is a relationship to those who, who have adequate vitamin D compared to those who supplement with adequate and therefore have higher levels of vitamin D if there's an even more reduced risk. So the big takeaway here is, above all, adequate vitamin D levels are incredibly important, can help prevent lots of disease, can help survival rates with cancer, and help to keep our bones healthy. And so that is it for our podcast episode on vitamin D. Again, that was just a nice, broad, brief overview to hopefully give you guys some information as to why you might see some headlines about vitamin D, why you see that on our Nutrition Facts label now. And with that, I am going to go ahead and sign off. And I look forward to talking with you guys uh, about more nutrition and health and wellness-related topics in the future. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of St. Alphonsus Wellcast, 
Brought to you by St. Alphonsus Corporate Health and Wellbeing and the St. Alphonsus Foundation. Always be sure to catch new episodes by subscribing to us through all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. We hope you'll tune in again. Until then, be well.